Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast today. This is episode number 314, and our guest is Joseph von Benedict. Joseph is an outdoor writer, and specifically a gun writer. Uh, he's an expert in many things firearms, and particularly on the bolt action and hunting side. And he's joined us on previous episodes to discuss firearms, uh, going back to our Building a Backcountry Rifle series, and much more. But in this episode, we're speaking with Joseph about a hunt, a pretty special hunt that he got to do this past summer. This conversation was actually recorded in August, but for a variety of reasons, we were not able to publish it until now. So you'll hear context. This was before Steve went on his sheep hunt. It was after Joseph's sheep hunt, which was the hunt we're talking about today. And just want to let you guys know when this was recorded in relation to those hunts because it does come up in this conversation. This is, as I mentioned, a special hunt. You'll hear about Joseph's opportunity to hunt bighorns. That's pretty unique and dive into the actual hunt story. Of course, while we had Joseph, we couldn't help but talk about some rifle related topics as well. And so there's just a lot packed in here, both on a hunt story, some of the technical aspects of rifle hunting and much more. Hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the conversation, I wanted to remind you guys about the EXO Experience Contest that's happening now in October of 2021 and actually continues through December. So throughout this fall of 2021, we just want to hear about and see your EXO experiences. And to thank you for sharing those, you'll be entered to win some great prizes. To get all the details and enter now, go to exomountaingear.com forward slash experience or look for the link in the show description. Hit pause and go do that now, and then come right back. Here is the conversation with Joseph von Benedict. Joseph, welcome back to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Excited to have you on here today. Man, it's a pleasure, guys. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, I think the first time you were on the show, I want to say it was probably 2016. Steve and I were doing a Building a Backcountry Rifle series. Yeah, uh, I had read quite a few of your articles, reached out to you, and you kind of helped us with that. And then you've been on since, uh, actually just last year, um, before a rifle elk hunt we had. We kind of did some on-air consulting with you, if you will. Uh, and so most of the discussions we've had with you have been pretty technical on rifle related topics, but today, as I'm sure we'll dive into some rifle chat, we're also going to tell a hunting story and that's about a pretty unique and special hunt that you've had this year that, uh, couldn't talk about for a while, but as of the release of this podcast, now we can talk about and tell a little bit of a story. So, um, I will point listeners to prior episodes with you, Joseph, um, and those will be linked in the show description if they want more background and context for who you are and also mention your podcast there because you have a great show that I enjoy, but I'm excited to dive into this story and I don't know where it starts. I, I remember speaking with you and you kind of had a short deadline and we were chatting you're like, can I get a pack pretty quick? Cause I just found out about this backcountry hunt that I'm going on and I'd love to try an EXO. And that's how I became aware of this. And at the time you couldn't even tell me where you were going or what you were doing, but what you can share how did this opportunity come about and the short notice and like, what's the backstory before we even get into the hunt of what you can share? Sure. Well, the backstory is for 35 years, I've been dreaming about hunting sheep, right? North American sheep of all the species I've been putting in for desert bighorns and 
for uh, Rocky Mountain bighorns in various states, dreaming about and trying to make a hunt for doll sheep in Alaska happen. Uh, longing from afar for a stone sheep opportunity, but those are getting rarer, you know. And I had an opportunity, kind of an unexpected opportunity come down the pipeline. I guess, you know, if you put in your time and you throw out uh, <laughs> those dreams and prayers into the universe enough, sometimes a surprise opportunity comes along. And that's what this one was. It was so good that I didn't dare tell anybody about it for fear at first that it was a hoax which i kind of knew all along that it wasn't <laughs> i gotta want to tell somebody this story and find out i've been duped <laughs> exactly yeah and in fact when i first heard about it the the word was it was a uh, for an odd dad and i was like eh that doesn't sound right but i was intrigued and then when i got the notification and i'm going to be a little bit vague here but it was for a a Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep hunt in the Southwest and in an area that I had always kind of dreamed of hunting, but never thought would be a possibility. This was on uh, tribal land. And so uh, hunt season dates were somewhat flexible. It was at the dictation of the, the tribal representatives. And we'd be hunting for an old sheep. It's a management hunt in an area known for incredible trophy potential. But this hunt was um, it's a management tool. It's a conservation tool. It brings funding to the sheep of the area and the conservation management efforts there and helps weed out some of the old rams. So our goal was to, uh, I was told, would be to hunt for a sheep that was older than 10 years old and between 170 and 175 inches. Now, those listeners of, of you who, you know, breathe and dream wild sheep hunting, uh, your jaw may have just dropped a bit because a 170 Rocky Mountain Bighorn's a big sheep. In this area, the genetics are so good. It's, um, you know, in, just in terms of Boone and Crockett measurements, which aren't everything, right? That's an average sheep. And so a lot of these rams get passed over by hunters that are looking for a truly tremendous sheep and they get old. And the tribe uses them as a resource to benefit the rest of the sheep and give hunters who have dreamed about it, like me, an opportunity to hunt a Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep instead of just letting them all winter kill. So um, that was kind of the opportunity that was presented to me. And the crazy thing is, as a lot of these things do, it occurred on short notice. I had two and a half weeks before the, the tribe wanted me there. I had no idea this was going to go down. And so that's I was... Like, uh, it's a, Sorry to cut you off, but that's like a... Um... You know, just going back to the idea that you've been wanting the opportunity to hunt sheep for 30 plus years, decades. I mean, truly kind of a a lifelong goal, kind of a life-changing hunt. And here it is in two and a half weeks from zero to hundred miles an hour. That's wild. Yes. And there are some challenges associated with that. And I, I, I recognized them right up front. I mean, I was a little soft, so I went into, you know, hyper overdrive trying to get fit and climbed every high place I could find around my place here in Idaho. But also I recognized that it was 
going to be a little bit hard to hold on to this experience because of a couple things. Short notice before the hunt. Usually, like with with Steve's hunt that maybe we'll talk about here in a bit, you've got time, often months and months leading up to your hunt to kind of savor it, think about it, plan, choose your equipment and so forth. Well, I had two and a half weeks and that's why I sent that um, that message to you and then the phone call saying, uh, <laughs> I, I need a really good pack and <laughs> I don't have a lot of time. You guys, thank goodness, came through for me and I was able to use what I now consider one of, if not the best backcountry packs on the market on this hunt. So thanks for that. Anyway, yeah, kind of a crazy experience. Yeah, awesome. I was glad you mentioned that because I think some hunters are maybe aware of the value of the dreaming and the planning and all that goes into leading to a hunt. And some guys, I think, cherish it, but almost subconsciously, but maybe you don't, haven't fully thought about that. Like how much of the hunt is the planning and is the looking forward to. And I even think of my kids, like even family trips, we, we tend to plan ahead with stuff like that. And that's part of the fun for my kids is for six months, they're talking about, Oh, I can't wait till we go here and do this and do that. And that anticipation, uh, sometimes is a huge part of the experience. And again, for hunters, like many of us embrace that consciously. And I think some of us enjoy the process, but maybe haven't thought about it compared to what you just mentioned. What if this was only two weeks long? What if I only had two weeks to dream about it and plan for it? Uh, and so maybe if some of us regular hunters who don't have this crazy opportunity thrown of our laps also can cherish more the things that we do get to plan ahead for. Yeah. And it is a very important element of the experience. I mean, I can tell you when I got the notification, and then the confirmation that it was indeed real, it wasn't a hoax, and it wasn't, uh, you know, misrepresented. I, oh, geez, for two days, I shook. Like, my mind was so blown apart, unfocused, I couldn't sit down and write an article for trying. I had to do busy work, like organize the basement, because I could kind of get a few things done doing that way. Anyway, <laughs> I, was, I was so incredibly excited that I, you know, just was almost dysfunctional. And then I kind of kicked into the overdrive planning and I, you know, in the, the two weeks remaining, I sorted out everything, clothing I'd wear, a good pack from you guys, what boots. And I was corresponding with the outfitter saying, what type of terrain are we going to be in? What type of altitude? Any specific training I should be trying to focus in in my whole <clears throat> 10 days, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, the rifle and ammunition and optics. And, you know, like you say, these things are often kind of a, a cherished planning journey as you go through the months leading up to a, a really significant uh, hunting adventure, which, of course, this was one of my top probably three in my life. So yeah, kind of an intense time there. Yeah. I want to, I want to come back and just talk a little bit about the tribal aspect to this and just have you introduce some of what you've learned about that or how those opportunities exist a bit more, but going back to planning real quick, I'm sure guys are already chomping at the bit, especially if they know you and your background and the, the vast experience you have with firearms and essentially the probably 
close to limitless choices you would have to choose something for uh, this hunt, even on the the short term, just having a lot of connections in the industry and getting to try things out. Uh, what did you choose in terms of rifle system and setup and kind of why, like what, what, why did you make those decisions going into this hunt? Sure. Well, my first impulse was, of course, you know, for anybody that loves the classic hunting literature was to use a 270 Winchester like Jack O'Connor loved so much for sheep hunting, but that was fleeting. And almost immediately I settled on a load that I wanted to use and, and I took everything else from there. I chose my cartridge and projectile first and then built on that. The cartridge was a 6.5 PRC. I wanted something with reach, with good authority for a deer or sheep sized animal. And yet funny enough that wasn't going to tear up a hide or a, a cape and so forth on a sheep because man, I've never done a full body mount in my life. I've never been able to afford one, but I went into this knowing that if I got a, a significant Ram, that was something I may want to do. And I, I love big Magnum cartridges. You guys know that I don't ever like being undergunned, but I also didn't want to shoot a three inch hole out the offside of my sheep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I chose the 6.5 PRC as being a cartridge that's very well balanced, very efficient. It's a short action, so it can be built into a compact, lightweight rifle, good for hunting the mountains. And the load that I picked right off the bat was Federal's Terminal Ascent ammunition. It's for one thing, it was a new load at the time, brand new, hot off the press, and I wanted to try it for that reason. For another, I have a, a deep background with the terminal ascent bullet, the prototypes that led up to it, and all the way back into the trophy bonnet bear claw fundamental design that uh, created the you know the foundation for that bullet and its integrity, its ability to perform from the muzzle out to geez a thousand yards if you're a shooter to shoot that far. So good cartridge, well-balanced, inherently accurate, loaded with a bullet that I knew wouldn't fail me, whether I got a close shot or a long shot. So the next step was with only two weeks to plan, I needed a rifle that I didn't have to tinker with that I knew would shoot well right off the bat. And <laughs> funny enough, my wife, Jenna Von Benedict is a, a wildlife artist of some note. And a couple of years back, I'm digressing here, but this does apply. The owner of Gunworks, Aaron Davidson, contacted us and asked her if she would be interested in trading a rifle for a couple of her bison paintings. Well, of course, <clears throat> I answered yes. <laughs> you answered for her. <laughs> yes, she would have loved you. <laughs> And he said, all right, get on our online gun builder and, and create whatever you want, no limitations. And so I got on there with her and we talked through configuration and cartridges and so forth. And she ended up with a beautiful climber model, Gunworks climber with a titanium action and proof research, carbon fiber wrapped barrel chambered in 6.5 BRC. And I thought, well, that's perfect. If anything's going to shoot this federal load wonderfully, it'll be that rifle. So I put um, a lightweight scope on it. I did not want to shoot at a sheep at extreme distance. I shoot a lot at long range in competition and so forth. And I practice with my hunting rifles out 
way past where I have any intention to actually shoot in the field. But, uh, you know, the ethics of the thing come into play. Plus with a sheep, if you wound one and you lose it, you're done. And so I wasn't, you know, aside from the ethics entirely, I wasn't willing to shoot at a sheep at what I consider extreme distance, which is anything past, for me, past 600 yards. So I didn't need a scope that I could dial to 1,200 yards. I just put a um, one of my favorite lightweight hunting scopes on it. It's a Swarovski Z5 in the, the 3.5 to 18 magnification with a 44 millimeter objective. I don't like a huge objective up front. I like the 40 to 44 millimeter size. It lets me mount it nice and close to the barrel in action so I can get a good cheek weld. That scope's built on a one inch main tube. So you, you don't have enough dial up in your elevation turret to dial past about 700 yards, which is just fine for me in this hunt. And it kept the overall weight of that rifle real low. Mounted it, if I remember right, in tally rings real strong lightweight one-piece ring base system nice and close to the rifle and went out and started shooting put a spartan precision bipod up front that's the the five ounce carbon fiber machined aluminum little bipod with a quick detach device i think you guys have used that one Mm -hmm. anyway excuse me rifle shot good but not great right off the bat so I was monkeying with it. I had a few of those bullets that I tried hand loading as well. I got a little more speed, but no more velo- uh, accuracy than the factory load. And just on a whim, I screwed on a suppressor. And holy moly, that rifle went to shooting. My first group was under a half MOA at 100 yards with the suppressor on. And consecutive for following groups three shot groups ranged between 0.4 and 0.6 inches pretty reliably. So just, you know, whatever accuracy characteristics that suppressor brought to the the table, it was a Gunworks six suppressor, by the way, it made a difference. I think it's a matter of taming harmonics by putting a weight on the end of your barrel. And there's some other elements, various accuracy minded shooters will say, well, there's less, uh, propellant, unburned propellant escaping and pelting the, the base of that bullet as it departs because the propellant gases exit between five and 8,000 feet per second. That's a lot faster than the bullet. Lots of theories, but the, the takeaway is that it made this rifle shoot with that ammunition splendidly. Factory ammo, I was good to go. I validated it out to 650 yards, was hitting on the money with it, and um, felt surprisingly prepared when it came time to head into the high country. That's awesome. We'll come back more and talk about, you know, what led up to the shot and things like that. But uh, again, stepping backwards, I know we digressed on gear for a minute, but what can you tell us about tribal lands, conservation opportunities, what that looks like? I mean, I'm sure there's many listeners who maybe don't fully understand like what are the differences between these tribal authorities and how does that work with state management and just different aspects like that. So feel free to hit it from a high level or share specific details about this opportunity if you want to, but just would love to kind of get a little bit more information on that topic. Well, I'll do my best, but candidly up front, I'm not an expert on it. I um, have 
you know, most of the sheep hunting opportunities I've looked for and applied for and so forth have been through state uh, draws on public land and so forth, just because I knew I could never afford, uh, you know, one of the high-end auction type tags or whatnot, or private land hunts. So this opportunity came down through some friends who had uh, some connections with the tribe. And when the opportunity came up at short notice, they asked if I could take advantage of it if I was interested in well well yes very much <laughs> so the what I do know is this a lot of the the tribes across the southwest which is where I grew up some the area I'm at least a little bit familiar with well they've done a fantastic job with conservation introducing sheep uh in habitat both where you know, his, historic sheep habitat and in areas that's prime sheep habitat, but at least within uh, history or memory, there weren't sheep there. Sometimes they put sheep where they know they'll thrive, these wild sheep. They may not be indigenous to a certain mountain range, but they are to the mountain range, you know, 50 miles over. So it makes sense, right? If there's good habitat where they won't be in frequent contact with domestic livestock, particularly domestic sheep, it's a good place to um, try and work on these conservation efforts. And um, so they've introduced sheep, various um, genetics. They'll try and get genetics that were indigenous to the area. Sometimes those are mixed with sheep from Alberta or, uh, you know, other mountain ranges in other states. And then Oddly enough, they're able to, I guess it's not odd, it makes sense, but it's surprising to someone they're unfamiliar with it. These tribes are able to raise a tremendous amount of money from um, these sheep hunts. Sometimes they're auctioned off. Sometimes they're done as a, a lottery type hunt through, um, you know, where you can buy tickets and apply at any rate. They bring in a lot of management dollars. And most of the tribes are doing a fantastic job of channeling those sportsmen's dollars straight into the conservation efforts. And in many of the areas, these sheep um, have thrived more, not to, not to, you know, say anything against state wildlife agencies who do their very best, but they've thrived more sometimes than the sheep under state run programs. Maybe this is because the, the tribes have jurisdiction or they have complete autonomy over what is allowed near them, whether there's, you know, domestic livestock grazing and so forth. And I grew up as a cattleman, so I'm all for multiple use of our public lands, but uh, it's, it's a simple and sad fact that domestic sheep carry diseases that uh, kill off the wild sheep very quickly, types of pneumonia and so forth. Usually, if I'm not mistaken, respiratory-borne diseases where if a domestic sheep waters at a guzzler in the backcountry or a spring or something, and then a wild sheep comes and waters there and there's a mucus transfer, that wild sheep can catch one of those respiratory diseases. And where the, the domestic sheep shakes it off may not even show symptoms from it, the wild sheep uh, not only passes it around their 
heard quickly, but has a very high chance of dying from it. Sometimes 80% or more mortality. So there's a lot to it. Um, I don't understand most of it, but the short answer is um, in many cases, these bring some tremendous opportunities, both for sportsmen. They're rare, but if you earn one, win one, purchase one at auction, whatever the case may be, you're going to have a tremendous hunt and you, you can be pretty comfortable, pretty confident that the dollars you spent, whatever they are, if it's a $20 raffle ticket or an exorbitant auction tag, those dollars are going to go to the sheep. Yeah. So when it comes to a hunt, are they, how engaged is the tribe then with you as a hunter? So I guess rolling into the, the beginning of the hunt story, were you hunting with tribe members, with separate guides? What did that look like? Sure. In my case, at least, and I believe in most of them, maybe all of them, yes, the tribe is very engaged and there'll be at least one, sometimes two or more representatives of the tribe that's acting as everything from a, you know, a guide and a, a friend, companion, historian over the area, right up through, uh, you know, uh, doing some regulation if need be, if, uh, you know, proper respect, for instance, isn't being accorded to the tribal land and so forth. So in my case, I received a call from a tribal representative, and this is where it actually sunk in that, yes, this is real and it's really going to happen. And he said, he just very pleasant, greeted me very professional and said, I just need to get your name and your driver's license number and a few things so that we can put them on your bighorn sheep permit. And those words were the ones that set me to shaking at my desk, right? <laughs> oh, here we go. This is real. <laughs> anyway, we corresponded a bit in the two weeks following. He was very helpful. I met now the tribe, at least in this case, I believe it's different in some other areas, but uh, they employ an outfitter who uh, handles the logistics, basically creates a camp, provides the vehicles, provides uh, guides that are very good at um, aging sheep on the hoof, everything good at everything from tracking wounded animals to helping Clients that may not be fit enough to pack their own animals out do that. Not that the tribal representatives aren't really good at, um, you know, the aging, the sheep and so forth are uh, the ones I worked with were phenomenal. Anyway, so I uh, drove to the area from my home. When the time came, I was met by the outfitter and the tribal representative, both uh, wonderful people and We've been asked to, to maintain a certain level of um, discretion here. So I'm going to not name names. Apologies for those of you who are hoping I would do that. But um, really, really good guys. Beautiful camp. Uh, fantastic food there. They made a point of feeding me well because I think they knew they were going to work me hard the next <laughs> day or days. <laughs> and... Um, Gosh, we got up the next morning, slept in a tent, got up the next morning, and it was a bit of a different feel. Like I was a, 
a guest and I felt like a, a guest. They're almost an honored guest. I know I personally inside felt honored to be on this tribal land and actually hunting there. Some pretty beautiful terrain, beautiful scenery, good people around me. But it was much different from the experience I would have had if I'd drawn, say, a public land tag through a state, for instance, like you did for this fall, Steve, where I would have done all the planning. I'd have been scouting through the whole summer. I would be driving the plan going in there. I'd have handled the logistics and so forth. I'm very much a DIY kind of guy, you know, and, and backcountry is, oh, it's where I'm happiest aside from being with my family. So it was different in that sense that I was kind of like the point of the spear, but also along for the ride if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. We had to access some pretty high country and there was a lot of snowpack underneath it. We we're trying to get into a high basin where uh, rams were known to hang. And so we used, oh gosh, first a side-by-side -side for about 45 minutes. Then we hit the snowpack and we transitioned to a big ATV with tracks on it instead of wheels and uh, a guy that knows how to drive those things a lot better than me shuttled us up two at a time up over this snowpack which was close to a mile and up to you know i'd say five or six feet deep where it was deepest and at the top of the snowpack that also was the top of timber line the snow doesn't melt off in some of that thick timber because the sun doesn't reach it. So we hit the edge of the trees. We got off that tracked four-wheeler at 11,000 feet and started hiking. And um, I, I try and stay in pretty good shape year-round. I was a little soft when this opportunity came up, but I'd pushed myself for a couple of weeks. It made a difference. And we went in, I think, two and a half or three hours climbing some of it on good improved trails some of it just cross country but we climbed switchbacked and we ended up started started seeing sheep pretty pretty quickly but usually uh ewes and lambs and then we f we came around this ridge and started working kind of up the side of it up the length of it and we started seeing rams we were about 12,000 feet at that point glassing ahead of us and down and um saw a band of four rams there was a real nice ram he's gonna be a whopper in a few years but i think he was only six or seven years old a couple adolescent rams then we saw another ram bedded by himself and these guides we had the the two tribal representatives and then some other um professional sheep guides with us one was my official guide the outfitter the others i think were just there because they love the sheep and they've been part of the management and the whole program for at least 15 years and they they um take every opportunity and immerse themselves in in the management and the, the hunts for these sheep anyway the that's i'm just saying that we had some really experienced guys there looking at these sheep and finding sheep where I probably would have been there all day long with my favorite spotting scope and binoculars before I found the sheep these guys were finding in 20 minutes. 
pretty impressive stuff. And every one of them was packing a high octane spotting scope because they're looking to count rings on these rams horns we're talking you know swarovski's with a 95 millimeter objective one guy had a leica similar size spotting scope just cool to see the equipment that they carried i i went in with my pack that you guys hooked me up with as light as i could make it just carrying the critical elements i had enough ammunition i had uh, my good camera. There's no way I was leaving this to a, a smartphone camera, right? And some food, emergency gear, and so forth. I think I had about 20, 25 pounds in. And we sat and glassed. And that basin slowly just seemed to come alive with a ram here and a little band there. Hanging on eyebrows of a cliff in a place I wouldn't have looked. Just so cool. Was it the, do you feel that they knew where to look or was it their eye for glassing or was it the equipment or all the above that made those guys so effective in finding sheep quickly? I think it was all of those things uh, and maybe more. I think they have an instinct for where to look from doing it for, let's say, 15 to 40 years, depending on the age of the guys I was with. Mm -hmm. They had the glass. They had spent lots of time in those mountains. And so I think they, they probably know whether consciously or subconsciously, they probably know the travel patterns where some of those little eyebrow trails are that the sheep tend to, to move on. And I think all those things come together and they just, you know, they they kind of home in on the sheep faster than somebody who was candidly very, a very inexperienced sheep hunter, you know, mm-hmm. as, as I was. You mentioned earlier, the, uh, I don't want to say the requirements, but kind of the goals of a hunt of the hunt from a, an age class perspective and specifically because of the comp- conservation initiative of the tribe, you knew that going into this, right? Like you knew that's what the opportunity was as it was presented to you as kind of for that certain age class and um, things like that. Yes, okay. I did. So yeah. it, 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 that would be, I think helpful <laughs> to know, like, as you're in this basin and seeing sheep here and seeing a little band there and things like that, just to know what you're looking for. And then obviously to have the guys with experience to be able to help judge that, you know, with you, I think is a a pretty unique perspective. And I would assume would be kind of an enjoyable experience just to be able to see different sheep and understand what you're looking for. And if that kind of did or did not match that, as you said, just not having much sheep experience. Yeah, very much so. And, um, yeah, I was warned going in that I very possibly would see a real big ram that was off limits, you know, or more than one, cause there's quite a few in the area that was off limits for one or both reasons, either it's too young or he was simply too big because these management tags bring in good dollars for conservation, but they, I think they auction off. I'm a little foggy on the details, but uh, two, I think, depending on the year and so forth, what they term the the trophy tags, where you go in and, man, those guys have a legitimate chance of shooting a 180 to 190 type bighorn sheep. So anyway, it, it happened. 
we were sitting there and and we saw what looked like a just a tremendous sheep and one guy said oh he's 10 years old and i knew okay well he he meets that qualification he's not too young but then everybody kind of went silent and they're looking at him and i said he looks real good i'd i'd be (laughs) delighted to shoot that sheep and the outfitter kind of ruefully because i'm sure he'd have been delighted to see me shoot the sheep too he he just kind of said this sheep may be off the table (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know it was an interesting experience to see that to see a sheep they they later told me they put him right on the cusp of 180 probably 179 to 180 and um he was with three other rams one was an adolescent little banana horn the other two were old warriors and it took us a little bit to to pick them apart and kind of pick which was the oldest one had a little bigger bases but a little less length and was younger ironically he they still aged him on the hoof at 11 or 12 which is old for a sheep very rarely does a rocky mountain bighorn as i've learned live past 12. the other sheep they every time they'd zoom in on them with one of these big spotting scopes they'd just they'd mutter under their breath and i could hear the excitement and pretty soon they're making exchanges like he's he's 12 at least he might be 13. nobody ever said 14 but well professionals like that they always hedge a little low you know if you're judging a big mule deer buck and you think he may go 190 you're gonna say hey he's he's a solid 180 maybe 185 but you're not gonna tell a client i think that deer's 190 because if you shoot him and he's 185 then you're the bad guy right yeah under promise over deliver right that's right yep and so they're talking about age the same way and i think a couple of them knew ahead of time this ram was old 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 now this put me in a little bit of a a, i like to call it a delightful dilemma um (laughs) i had hoped even though i knew you know we weren't hunting for the biggest ram on the mountain which would be an endeavor that you might dedicate eight to ten days to i'd hope to stretch this hunt out over three four days or a week or more just to experience the country to learn about the sheep to watch a lot of sheep and so forth but when we found a ram that they told me is in that 170 to 175 inch range and he is old 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 plus i really like the look of him is you know he had a lot of corrugation around the bases they were called they had a name for it uh pie crust like apple pie crust and heavily broomed tips lots of mass carried all the way out he didn't have as much um droop you know his his curl wasn't as big as the the big big ram he was with but you had to look real close at least i did with my inexperienced eyes to pick them apart and these three old rams kept mixing together and it would take me some time to pick out the biggest one which told me that there's not that much difference between them right Mm -hmm. it wasn't like that ram that's pushing 180 was a significantly bigger ram these were all big old rams and one of these guys told me look he is one of the oldest sheep we've ever seen up here and i i was looking his his hide was in great condition was which was important to me um 
not certainly a defining factor, but it was nice to know that uh, his hide was in good condition and whatever type of mount I determined to do to kind of honor him and remember him by and have in my home, uh, you know, it was going to look good because his hide was in good condition. Man, I just couldn't say, let's keep looking. It wasn't the right thing to do. It didn't feel right. And I felt like, I think all of us felt like this is the sheep we need to take. And I, I started feeling like that's my ram, right? Well, they were below us in this basin. I checked my um, Garmin device. I had a little inReach Mini. And I was we were sitting at 12,200 feet where uh, where we're sitting right there. And it dropped off very steeply down to the basin bottom. And this little band of rams was right in the bottom of this kind of, uh, you know, drainage right here, but still, uh, high. I, I ranged him. I had a couple of the other guys range him and we were getting a distance of 535 yards with a corrected range of about 500 because of the angle. And I didn't really want to shoot that far, but we deliberated and the outfitter finally just came right out and said, I think if you want a clean shot at this ram undisturbed, I think we need to take it from here. And I was confident in my rifle. So I laid down, I got real prone, real steady prone on the bipod, got um, something stuffed under the toe of my stock. So there just wasn't even a tremor in my crosshairs, not a breath of wind. Everything was just right aside from it being a very steep angle, right? Now, there's always some concerns there, plus at high altitude, which I'd compensated for in my my calculations and the dial on my turret. High altitude, people tend to shoot over stuff because the air is so thin, they, they experience a significant increase in the efficiency of their ballistics. Bullets don't slow down as fast when the air is thin and, and there's not as much friction so they don't drop as much and two or three of the guides there said hey everybody shoots over sheep at this you know at this altitude so hold low and i um i knew i'd compensated in my dial and my calculations for the altitude but still i thought you know what they're probably right and so i held about on the sheep's brisket took a couple of deep breaths tried to take just a snapshot of that moment in my mind knowing you know this was the culmination of a lot of decades worth of dreaming and then i said something to let him know you know here we go firing the hole something like that and squoze and wouldn't you know what i hit exactly where my crosshairs were that bullet pretty much burned the bottom of that sheep's brisket and went through the the flesh on the back of its offside leg. It jumped and ran, mixed with the other three rams in its group, and then with another group that joined it. So there's about nine rams stringing out across that little basin and starting to climb out the other side. I got on the one that I'd shot at almost immediately because I could see him limping. and had a good guide and outfitter. He he stayed calm. He just called the range, gave me a corrected range for the angle. And I dialed for it. This time I didn't add any underhold 
to compensate for altitude. I just trust the gun, the system, my uh, calculations. And at 591 yards, when he paused, I shot him squarely through both shoulders and dropped him in his tracks. And that was that. <laughs> and that was that. I was wow. yeah, you're going there on that story about holding low, and I'm like, I isn't. I mean, you, I'm sure you got all the information there in front of you and adjusting for altitude. It surprised me that you were doing that. You know, in retrospect, it surprised me too. But yeah. I think in the heat of the moment with a handful of very experienced sheep guides around me just saying, look, even good shooters shoot over stuff, heads yeah. low. Yeah. I, I followed their advice. And, yeah. you know, sometimes sometimes you do that. And it was a mistake. But thankfully, we were able to um, rectify it simply and humanely and quickly. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. With so, the, yeah, with the, so did you, when you talked about you know, essentially having your, your scope, uh, and your dial, um, compensated for that elevation, were you, did you roughly kind of configure that for about 11,000 or 12,000 feet? Or was that what you're anticipating going into the hunt? I did. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, the outfitter told me we'll be hunting between 11 and 13,000 feet. Okay. And so I did all my shooting and validation around home at 5,000 feet in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And then when I went, I arrived at the camp. I just asked a few more questions to confirm that we'd be that high. And then I, I re-crunched the calculations on my ballistic app that I'm real familiar with, real confident in, lots of history with it, and made a couple of changes to the, the turret. Now, the this is the nice thing about the turret on the Swarovski Z5 is it comes with a series of rings that you can change. Uh, and so I just added a couple, you know, each ring has a knob or a number on it where it correlates with a distance and you get to choose where you set those. So I had an, you know, a little knob or a color coded, uh, dot for each range to 500 yards. And then I just used a, <laughs> an old redneck trick of mine. I use a, a metallic permanent Sharpie, silver metallic Sharpie to write my number six on for 600 yards once all those rings were stacked on the turret. So all I had to do was basically at the, at the further distances, remove a click or two of altitude adjustment for, for that turret. And it was now, um, I guess, regulated uh, set for 12,000 feet, which is where I crunched the numbers since he said it would be between 11 and 13. Mm -hmm. Now you can't do that with a, a custom engraved turret, but you can order a second turret. And had I been using a scope, you know, like Leupold's VX5 and VX6 series are a couple of my favorites for backcountry hunting. And I try and hunt with an, a turret engraved for the yards. But if I went from my home altitude to this type of altitude, or conversely, say to Kodiak Island to hunt Sitka blacktails on the shore, I would certainly uh, order another custom turret that was custom for uh, that was engraved for the anticipated environmental conditions where I'd be. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned getting set up for that shot, being able to get prone be real steady on the uh, bipod and then using some sort of rear rest under the toe of the stock. What did you use either specifically in this situation or what have you found works well just in general, specifically for backcountry hunts? Cause obviously there's 
certain instances where guys may carry something specific as a rear rest or use different uh, items there. But, you know, you go on a backcountry hunt, you're worried about pack weight. You may not be packing a rear rest, but just to give guys some ideas or thoughts on improvising essentially uh, as a rear rest. Sure. Well, just to describe the position kind of from the the beginning, I was laying on a fairly steep slope, which actually helped because I didn't have to, uh, you know, try and shoot down over a an edge where I was laying flat, uh, but the shot was way down. So I was already kind of lined up behind my rifle, if that makes sense. Using that uh, Spartan Precision bipod up front that I mentioned earlier, uh, that attaches with rare earth magnets. It's got a male female type adapter arrangement and it takes two seconds to install or remove. And you can also change the legs out. I carry a standard height leg, but you can unscrew those and, and they screw onto the top of my uh, trekking poles, which are also by Spartan. So if I need to, I can turn that into a standing height or sitting height. They're collapsible trekking poles, a bipod in less than half a minute. Pretty cool. But for this, I was just using the standard configuration up front. I like to load a bipod to help with stability. That just means put forward pressure from my shoulder into the buttstock of that rifle and put a little bit of forward tension on that bipod. So the, the feet are gripping. This helps with recoil control so that you're able to spot your own impacts more consistently and also just helps with consistency and accuracy it seats that buttstock into your shoulder helps you make a clean you know execute a clean shot each time and under the toe of my stock i typically use one of two things let's say that's three things if i'm in a hurry and the shot isn't real far i'll just ball up my fist right on my left fist i'm a right-handed shooter under the toe of my stock and i can get pretty dang steady with that if i'm not worried about weight too much i pack a little lightweight shooting bag that's probably oh four inches by six inches and about two inches deep with a super lightweight fill the whole thing i think is three or four ounces i can pull that out of my pack stick it under the toe of my stock and then grip it kind of squish that fill as needed to raise or lower the the butt of the rifle and get on target <coughs> excuse me and get really really steady for a challenging shot now i opted to leave that in camp because i knew we'd be at quite high elevations right so i i but i didn't want to just use my fist i felt like this shot i needed a little more stability than that so i defaulted to um kind of a trick that I've learned over the years. I carry my binocular in uh, a chest pouch. My preferred chest pouch is the one by Badlands with the magnetic closure around the top, kind of a, almost a, a duck build type thing. You just grab a loop, pull on the front, and that magnetic seam will pop open. You can lift your binocular out. Well, that thing can be shoved over on your chest. And I've gotten to where if I need a you know, real stable something underneath the toe of my stock, I'll just grab it with my left hand and shove it over and up toward my shoulder and get that whole binocular pouch underneath the toe of the stock. And that's what I did for this one. It makes for a really stable shot. I like it. Yeah, I've certainly used my bino harness as well. Um, there are some 
I have a rear bag from Tab Gear, T-A-B, and I think it's two, somewhere between two and three ounces. So yeah, if guys are kind of curious, there are some good kind of lightweight options if you want to pack something specific. Steve, uh, I know you use, you know, he basically, you made a specific stuff sack, right? For your bivy that you use, but yeah. if guys haven't done that, I mean, a rear bag can make a world of difference and it is something you can improvise for sure. Yeah. And a bag like that can really be a great asset. The only disadvantage of course, is that you usually have it in your pack. And if you need to shoot fast, it, you know, it takes too much time to get it out, which mm-hmm. is why the the binocular pouch hack can be pretty useful yeah so you mentioned on the second shot and we again digressed on gear for a minute but second shot through the shoulders drop some where he's standing pick up the story thoughts reactions you know how, how does that culminate from there when the shot's over you know uh, it's hard to describe I, uh, I was I was using that suppressor, which all those guides were a big fan of. And some interesting things happened after the shot. The basin went entirely silent, which it had been to start with because, I mean, at that high altitude, there's just not that much making noise, right? There aren't even a lot of birds, maybe the occasional camp robber jay or whatnot. But the sheep the remaining sheep didn't really know what had happened. And so they milled around a little bit, moved off 50 or a hundred yards and just stopped. So there's still sheep in the basement. There's Rams laying over there. I had the crosshairs still glued to them with another shell in, in case. And nobody said anything. It was just quiet and almost felt a bit surreal. Well, it really felt surreal. I just shot my first, wild sheep and that's a moment that's a seminal moment in any really serious backcountry hunter's life who dreams about sheep and believes as so many hunters have over the the, you know, the decades that a wild sheep is the ultimate mountain quarry after we just let everything settle made sure the ram was anchored we kind of collected ourselves and started working down around and we had to go in a horseshoe shape because of the drop off below us was steep enough it would have been dangerous and taken much more time to go straight off approached the sheep the other rams moved off a bit but i think this had been the lead ram and i'm not uh you know a, a bighorn sheep psychologist but i have heard about how if you shoot, shoot the lead ram often the rest of a, a band of rams kind of a, is left indecisive and they'll move off a bit but they don't spook and glow, blow clear out of the the area like they might have if the lead ram had still been alive and that's what these did so we were able to get a good look at the the rest of the rams and just enjoy seeing them there as we worked in and they eventually did move out of the the area we got there but you know i asked the guys if they'd mind if i went up ahead and they they hung back about 100 yards and let me go and just spend a few minutes with this sheep and i don't know how to describe it i almost felt numb in a way ecstatic in one compartment of my brain and then a little bit numb in the other because of what had just occurred. And I was cognizant of the fact at the time that this was a very rich experience, but it was very short. I'd been there less 
you know, on that tribal land at this point in time, less than 24 hours. And I already have my sheep down and I knew it was going to be hard to hold on to these memories and the, the sensations and impressions. If I didn't consciously take time to soak them in and record them. So I got there, I put my hands on the Ram and said a, a little private prayer. Thanks for the opportunity and for the, the Ram's life. And, just sat for a bit. The other guys came up and, oh, it was pretty cool. I mean, they, they congratulated me, but I, they were still looking at this ram with a little bit of unbelief in their own eyes. And, and they're starting touching rings, counting rings without saying much. And finally, one of them just burst out with it. I think it was the outfitter. He said, that ram's 14 years old. And another guy, one of the, the top guys there said, yeah, I got the same thing. And the the native tribal representative counted as well and agreed and it turns out this ram was the oldest bighorn sheep that not only was ever taken on that specific mountain range but that that outfitter who i believe has over a hundred uh you know bighorn sheep hunts in his history not his own but with clients it was the oldest ram he'd ever taken just extraordinary. Uh, he was the right size as they green scored him uh, later that night. He was just over 170 inches, perfect, heavy ram, uh, carrying his weight well out. His bases, uh, they showed me this, they explained it. They said, when a ram gets this old, it gets harder for him to get the nutrition to keep growing and increasing base mass. So his bases were actually not uh increasing in size like the you know they didn't continue to taper bigger and bigger his second mass measurement was the same as his first mass measurement and the third one wasn't a whole lot smaller so he just carried even though he wasn't huge in his bases he carried good mass all the way out very impressive that way and just with the old broomed tips and all the chunks knocked out of the the horn bases up at his forehead such a beautiful, impressive old warrior of a ram. And you could see, too, where for the past year or two, he'd kind of quit fighting so aggressively. I think he probably quit rutting and quit thinking he had to to fight a lot. And so he had a little less of the wear on his horns in the lower areas. And, of course, they're newer. They're more recently grown, too, so that contributes. But... Beautiful hide and well-fleshed. I had expected a 14-year-old, an old sheep, whether it was 10 or 12 or whatever, to be a bit gaunt, but he wasn't. I think because he's not rutting anymore, he tended to maintain good condition throughout the year. And um, yeah, we did a little bit of forensics looking at where I'd hit with my shots. And we uh, just sat at one point, it was cool enough. I knew the meat wasn't going to spoil, but I also didn't want to make the the guys think that I was holding up the show. And I said, "Guys, we can you know we can start taking them apart whenever whenever you're ready." And and the outfitter's like, "Oh no, we soak this in. We're just going to sit here and enjoy this," which I was really glad for. I think he knew, and just for himself, you know, when you you shoot an old ram like that in the high country, it's it's a rare thing. And it's worth taking the time to savor that moment. We got some good photographs and um, yeah, just enjoyed it. 
And then these guys pitched in and, you know, I've, I've taken apart a lot of animals, caped a lot of animals, but I was uh, not hesitant at all. Uh, I'm not proud. I said, look guys, I've never caped a sheep and this is really, really critical. Do you mind putting your, your best hand with a blade on this to, to cape the sheep off? And of course they, they expected to do it anyway. And they made short work of him, took him apart there. I, I just sat back, which is always a little funny for me being so much of a DIY guy, but sat back and watched, enjoyed the process, photographed a few tricks they were using that I had not used myself. So I learned a little bit and told them, look, I, I want to carry out at least the head. You know, it's one of the heavier parts. Um, that there were enough of us that they each took a quarter. Uh, the outfitter took the cape. I took the head and we didn't have that heavy of packs going out. I think with the head was probably about 30 pounds, give or take. I probably had no more than 50 pounds going out and so much, you know, I was still surfing on endorphins and adrenaline. It was, uh, it was easy carrying that load, even at that elevation and climbing out of that basin. Mm. Is there anything you're able to describe here in a, you know, non-visual verbal format of those kind of tips or tricks or little things you learned from watching those guys work? You know, I think, um, the biggest thing I learned about was doing a, a full body cape. The taxidermist I'd talked with before my hunt said, look, make sure they do a full body. Even if you think you're just going to do a shoulder mount, because I can use a full body cape for either. But if you in down the road, you decided, you know, you want a full body before we mount it. You can't, you can't full body mount uh, a shoulder cape. And after hearing how old the sheep was, even knowing it was out of my price range, I kind of just, uh, I thought, I, you know, I do want the option. And so I asked if they'd full body cape it off. And I guess the, you know, watching them do that was educational. Just watching the precision of the cuts and the knowledge with which they, um, they went at the process. They'd done this a lot of times. It was cool to watch the way they teamed up on what was really a very steep slope. It's hard to see it in the photographs, but it's steep and it's just loose rock. And they'd have a couple of guys that were just stabilizing the ram while one or two worked on him and uh, never really had to talk much or discuss much, but they weren't slashing knives near each other's hands, which is always an issue with entry-level guys, beginners that are trying to help each other field dress an animal is you got to be aware of what your knife's doing, what the other guy's knife is doing at the same time, because sometimes you go for the same cut and you end up risking cutting each other. Right. These guys were very effective at that. A trick that I didn't really expect to see was how they, they, they made the cut down the, the full length of the back. I think they called it a dorsal cut on the Cape and then they peeled it down off each side and they took the quarters off from the spine down. And then as soon as they were detached from the carcass, they'd lift and pull on that big meaty top of the quarter as another guide skinned around the leg right down to the hoof. And it just, you know, I probably would have fought and battled to fold that leg up and poke the elbow. Through. I don't know. 
I mm. might have tried to, to skin the leg off inside of that tube type uh, skinning job before cutting the quarter off. It made so much more sense to cut it off from the backbone down and then just pull it up out of the leg. <laughs> yeah. Little stuff that you wouldn't think about, or at least I might not have, that made the job look easy. It's pretty mm. impressive watching those guys work. Yeah, that is neat. How do you, um, you know, we're, we're a bit removed, but, you know, we've talked about short notice leading up to the hunt. Obviously the hunt was uh, fairly short lived. What's, you know, as you've reflected on it in the weeks now since, uh, any additional thoughts, right? Just on the experience on the culmination of waiting that long, dreaming that long. I'm just kind of curious, like any, any thoughts, changes in perspective that you have now here after the fact of being able to sit on those moments now for a bit and look back? Yeah. You know, there are a few things that I'm glad I did. Um, and probably a few others that I would focus on even harder going forward. One of the big things is, I guess, you, know, you hear it from, I, I heard this for years, never stop dreaming, never stop hoping from people who had shot sheep in, in unusual opportunities. I, I don't draw tags generally. I've drawn one good tag in my life. And um, I usually have to work pretty hard for the opportunities I get. So I always kind of had this sense that, well, yeah, never stop dreaming, never stop hoping, but that's kind of, I'm not that guy, you know? Well, it turned around and, and this time I was that guy. So I'm going to pass that along, be optimistic and keep hoping and dreaming and planning. And perhaps more pertinently, be prepared when, if, and when that opportunity ever strikes, because it can come as my opportunity demonstrated, it can come a very short notice, whether it's a turn back tag and you're on the alternate list for a great mule deer hunt somewhere in the Henry's of Utah or whatever, you may need to be ready with two and a half weeks to plan. So stay at least moderately fit. Don't just exercise the few weeks or, or months leading up to hunting season, stay fit year round and be prepared to, to push yourselves hard for a couple of weeks before an opportunity just to get tuned up. But at the same time, be aware that if you leave it late enough that you injure yourself trying too hard to get fit, you've just screwed your hunt, right? I climbed a couple of pretty high peaks getting ready for this hunt solo. Didn't have anybody to go with, didn't really want to go with anybody. I just wanted to go out and be on my own in the back country and push myself and every step I took, I was thinking, all right, if I twist a knee, if I blow out a knee, this is done. I won't be able to get into that country. So I was careful. I'm middle-aged now, uh, firmly into middle age, and <laughs> not too proud to use trekking poles and so forth now, just because it stabilizes you. So that's, I guess, the first point I would say, looking back, that I'm glad I was at least, well, not tip-top mountain condition, I was close enough. And I did not struggle on this hunt. Second one would be to always have um, your gear close enough to ready. Being a an outdoor gun rider and, and a hunting rider, I use a lot of different firearms and scopes and ammunition and just various hunting tools. I rarely hunt with the same rifle twice. And that's both fun and daunting. 
You know, every time you got to set up your rifle, try and maximize his performance, get it ready to go. For hunters that don't have that um, as part of their livelihood, man, just make sure that your rifle is in good shape and ready to go at a moment's notice and that you have a really capable tool. I've known guys in the past, I've been guilty in the past myself of this, of coming out of a hunt with something about your equipment that wasn't quite right. And you know it, but the hunt's over, it's done, you just set it in the safe and you go back to work and you live your life thinking, all right, at some point this, you know, before next season, I'm going to have to rectify that. Well, don't procrastinate, get it taken care of right away so that you're always ready for a, an opportunity like this. Um, what else? Just try and, at least this is what I did. And I was successful to a point, I think, when an opportunity like this happens, try and live in the moment and soak in every aspect of it, whether it's good or bad, because the challenges, I think, are just as important as the successes. In fact, I've I've often said this, you know, on, on my podcast that um, I think in most cases in the backcountry, the reward you experience is almost directly proportional to the challenges you face in achieving it. Yeah, good words. Could Steve, not agree with, with uh, that more. <laughs> yeah, by the time this podcast is released, you'll have been hunting on your sheep hunt. But as uh, we're having this conversation, you're getting ready to go into it. As we talked about earlier, just super excited. But What's stirring in your head, man? Thinking about uh, bighorn sheep, talking yeah, with Joseph here yeah, and his story. Uh, I, I recently um, got to go fly my unit, and we didn't see any rams from the air or anything like that. But just seeing the country, I, I can relate to Joseph's uh, those two days you spent just like in pure like I was a panic. But I'm I'm just so excited I can't function. I, that's all I could say is like like going through my gear and just doing whatever I can. But it's really like I'm pretty much ready. It's just time to get boots on the ground and get in there. And I got about. Uh, so as we're recording this, I got less than two weeks, so I'm just amped to get in there. And, and, um, uh, as Joseph just said, like the, the effort put into it is the, you know, to me, what's going to make the hunt. I, I really don't want to, you know, you, you want the, you want to kill a sheep, but you sure don't want it to like for you, Joseph happen on the first day, almost where it's like, oh, I want, I wanted to be back here for a week and suffer. So, um, it's, uh, I mean, I'm looking at 20 miles just to get into where I'm going to start hunting sheep on foot. So it's going to be, a, it's going to be some work regardless, but, um, yeah, just, uh, Joseph, you just nailed it there. So soak out, soak in the adventure. That's my plan. It's once in a lifetime tag. So if I fill that tag, I'll never be able to do it again, other than hopefully join some buddies in the future. So plans just to enjoy it and take my time, check out the scenery and hopefully, uh, fill it, fill my, uh, notch my tag on a big old sheep. It's pretty profound, isn't it? Having yeah. that feeling, knowing that's coming, something you've waited most of your life for. Yeah. That's pretty it's hard awesome. to focus. Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Luckily, uh, I got some good employees at the office. I can uh, be somewhat out of it and things are still getting done. <laughs> there you go. Well, man, I'm, I'm going to be with you on, in spirit on that one. I hope I you have a it. tremendous hunt and find a, a whopper ram in there and bring him home. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, what are you going to be hunting with, Steve? I got to throw that out there. What rifle? Cartridge? And uh, and so yeah. So yeah. I just had, uh, there's a gun company out of salmon called divide gun company. Um, and they just built me, I did, I built up a Creedmoor six, five, um, 
I had a PRC and I'm, my shoulder's pretty jacked up. So I'm, I'm just really recoil sensitive and that it, it just, it hurts. Um, I even got this Creedmoor and, and I was like for the sheep hunts, I was tempted not to put the suppressor on it just from a weight savings thing. Um, and I shot it a few times and it just, even that little Creedmoor doesn't feel good. It's just not a comfortable thing when the gun goes off. So, um, put the suppressor on it and it's yeah, it's shooting good. It's a right at six pounds bare gun with, I put a little night force, uh, two to 10 on there and the suppressor and yeah, it's right about eight pounds right now. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty excited about it. And just got a solid copper bullet that I threw in there. And I I've, uh, put the, went with the copper bullet just for, you know, I know it's going to be plenty for the sheep. And then also I'll have an elk tag in the unit when I'm in there sheep hunting. So just in case a bull steps out at a couple hundred yards, I got a good solid bullet to get some penetration. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah. which copper bullet? Um, so I've never shot it before. It's uh, Badlands Precision. They're out of okay. South Dakota. I don't know if you've heard of them or not. Um, no. Yeah, I, I had neither. Um, I was I was going to go with the hammers. We've uh, Mark and some other buddies have had excellent results with it. And the, the guy who built the load up uh, divide there um, had these. And he's like, hey, let me see how these shoot and load them up. And the gun's shooting, you know, fantastic. It's you know, well under half a minute with under capable hands. I can't shoot it that well. But um so it's shooting lights out and uh, getting, it's a 125 shooting it uh, right at 2,900 feet per second. So that'll work. Uh, yeah. It should, uh, should do the job. Very cool. Yeah. What I got to ask now, what pack are you taking in? Uh, fortunately, uh, well, yeah, obviously, uh, EXO, but, uh, I've been working on a prototype, so I'll be running, um, Ooh. it's like a prototype 4,000 cubic inch bag. Um, something I've been working on for not necessarily the bag, but the frame itself. Uh, it's been in the process for a couple of years now. And, um, so yeah, this will be, uh, I've been hunting with for the last two years of different variations of this ever since we launched the K3, it's been been developing the next generation so um yeah i'll be hunting with that and checking it out and seeing how it performs and putting it through the paces before um it's probably still well over a year away from us ever releasing it but um just yeah getting way ahead in the prototyping stages yeah awesome well i i can tell you this that k3 frame and the pack you guys sent me was outstanding and i'm a little bit of a pack snob i've uh, <laughs> i've used not all of them but a lot yeah. of them and yeah, most of them are pretty good, but it it takes something somewhat special to impress me, and, and this mm. was a really great pack, and appreciate that. I, I hope to get it bloody many more times in the future <laughs> years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, on that Swaro scope, how um, how did you feel about that scope and its durability? And that it was, I did have a Z five on there. Um, that's what Divide put on there, and then I was just a little. I don't know, not, not sold on the durability of it. You know, I, um, I'm kind of the opposite. I've got a lot of years of experience with that Z5 yeah. and that specific size, the three and a half to 18. And yeah, that is a fantastic scope. It? It's okay. only downside is if you want to shoot past 600 yards, the dial, uh, whether yeah. it's on steel targets or, or whatever, if you want to hunt that, you know, past that distance, the turret is not, uh, up to that in, you know, in your traditional, I shouldn't even t say traditional, it's more of a cutting edge thing. There are better turrets on the market today from night force like yours mm -hmm. or from Leupold with that, 
um, you know, the CDS ZL series and the ZL2 series, mm-hmm. which have the zero lock and the zero stop. Uh, other than that, the optical clarity is fantastic because mm-hmm. it's a one inch tube, it weighs a full quarter pound less than any of the other competing designs mm-hmm. that have a side parallax and a dial up turret, the great optics and so forth. It's a 16, 15 and a half, 16 ounce scope, which is yeah. pretty light yeah. for a capable 600 yard scope. So, okay. man, I yeah. like it. That said, I mean, a night force is like a sledgehammer. You just about pound railroad spikes with them without hurting them. <laughs> yeah. But don't was, think you. Yeah. I think it's a good choice. <laughs> yeah. That was my, I just wanted to be able to drop the, accidentally drop the gun in the middle of the hunt and not be like, oh crap. Right. And I've, I've had a night force on my gun. I've, uh, my older Creedmoor I had, and then I have, uh, my, our buddy Tyler, we were on a, a hunt and his we he had a 80 pound pack set it down with a gun strap to the back and that that thing tipped over on rocks and we're like oh no that thing's done <laughs> you know and he got home and it didn't lose zero i was blown away so that just having yeah. that confidence is what steered me to take that that swirl off uh, and go with the night force and it's only the two to tens uh it's two and a half to ten it's 20.5 ounces so it's it's four and a half ounces heavier than the swirl but i, yeah. I lose what I've been worried about was it's only a 10x and being you said it right there in your story. Like I'm going to, I may have three sheep in my scope that are at 500 yards that are very similar in size. And, and at 10x, I'm going to have a tough time without a spotter over my shoulder being one on the left, one in the middle. You know, um, I'm a little worried about that situation. So hopefully it doesn't, uh, when that shot does present itself, I'm not like, you know, uh, looking at three Rams that are all really close. And I guess if they're all close, it's not a big deal, but um, sure. Yeah. I hope, yeah. I hope you get that opportunity. It's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. That, that said, I don't think you will um, battle with not enough magnification. I'm assuming you're okay. probably taking a good spotter or maybe a oh, yeah. high octane pair of binoculars. Yeah. I should, I should say it correctly. A high octane binocular. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's uh, it's one of those things. But I've had a couple of experiences shooting a game with a an eighteen power rifle scope on eighteen power, and things went south because I couldn't find it for a quick, fast follow up shot. Yep. Yep. So I don't like shooting a game with my scope on more than ten power maximum. Anyway, I shot my shoot on nine power. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. That's what in. When I shoot steel targets, um, you know, at 600 yards, the 10 power is like, oh, that's that's tough to see that little nine inch steel target down there. But um, in practice, when I'm out in the field at nine, 10 X, even out to five to 600 yards, you're very confident of where those crosshairs are. Like, I don't feel like I need more than that. Right. Yeah. Plus, with less magnification, that bigger field of view really helps you spot your own impact. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those two advantages, being able to see my own bullet hit plus get a fast follow-up shot because I don't lose the animal in my scope, man, I, I'll never shoot another game animal on high power if I have my mm. option, you know, my choice. Yeah. yeah. Ah, that's good confirmation of kind of what um what my thought process was. So sure. Yeah. Well, from from what I've heard, from what I saw, it's pretty rare that you don't have time when you're looking at a bighorn ram. They don't tend to get hunted that hard. And it, as long as you don't expose yourself and blow them clear out of the country or or feed them your wind real strong, mm-hmm. you're probably going to have time to study one a bit and and make sure it's what you want 
uh, you know, unless of course you come over a, a ridge and 50 yards away, there's one that looks like a Marco Polo. Then you just drop <laughs> everything and start shooting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Gosh, I can't wait. I'm so close here. <sighs> Mark, I'll it see you in a month. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll hold down the fort. Uh, oh, good. Joseph, we so appreciate the time and uh, honestly, the opportunity to hear the story and have you share it with the audience. It's uh, obviously a special hunt. So honored to have you share it with us. Um, as I mentioned, we will leave uh, links in the show description to the prior appearances you've had on this show as well as your show, but just to wrap up, go ahead and Kuka uh, let listeners know if they want to follow more of you and your podcast and things like that. What's the best quick way to do that? Sure. Well, I appreciate that opportunity. You know, I think I told you this once before, but that podcast episode with you guys many years ago was the first I ever did. And it inspired me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And to this day, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, you can reach me. Listeners can follow me on Instagram. It's just Joseph Von Benedict on Instagram or Facebook. Also, the Backcountry Hunting Podcast Instagram page is a great place to follow along. And you can find that on iTunes or uh, any of the the big podcast listening apps. Uh, yeah, appreciate it. Uh, check it out, folks. And um, let's see what else. If you have questions about uh, anything related to it, you can email me on a podcast email address, which is just joseph at backcountrypodcast.com. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. I appreciate you letting me uh, plug my show. Well, there you have it, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to go check out Joseph's podcast as well. There'll be a link in the show description or just in your podcast app that you have open right now. Go search for his show and hit subscribe. As always, if you have anything for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We would love to tackle any questions, topic suggestions, or take guest suggestions that you have for future episodes. And finally, don't forget about the Exo Experience Contest. Just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash experience. We'll talk to you soon.